Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Talkville 21 podcast for the first episode of our second season. Today, we'll be tackling a complex and nuanced issue, that of China, the Chinese Communist Party, and the role that they play in the Western political consciousness. Guiding us through this is today's guest, Adam Nee. Adam is a China analyst with an impressive number of accolades and experiences under his belt. As the co-editor of the excellent China Nikon newsletter, he has demonstrated masterful insight on issues related to the broader matter of China. This insight spans geopolitics, military history, party organization, and political philosophy. Through China Nikon and his Twitter account, he commands an audience of academics, policy professionals, and business people in the thousands, and is regularly cited in the media by outlets such as Al Jazeera, the BBC, and the Financial Times. I personally have followed his work and China Nikon for over three years, and have been consistently impressed. As this is a bit of a more philosophically oriented episode, Links to some of Adam's more topical work can be found on the page for this episode on the Talkville 21 website. I urge you to check them out and to subscribe to China Nikon. Before we dive in, a few words. The matter of China's future looms large in Western public discourse, particularly in geopolitical and academic spheres, because of the significance of the role that it plays symbolically in relation to the West. Is it an adversary in the mold of the Soviet Union? a trade partner with whom we have generated unprecedented wealth, a successor to the title of global hegemon, the ambiguity of China's role in relation to the West is heightened because of its incredibly quick rise, which was unprecedented across human history, and the strangeness of its political model to Western observers. The Chinese Communist Party's secrecy and leadership struggles play to an inherent human interest in group power dynamics. Its lack of external transparency drives us to understand what exactly motivates the pursuit of power within its massive bureaucratic system. At the same time, the idea of the CCP as a monolith driving a country of 1.4 billion people at a time when domestic political struggles within Western countries make cooperation between political parties seem all but impossible is terrifying in its vastness of scope to a Western observer. The goal of this interview was to examine these issues, to examine the philosophical underpinnings of power within the Chinese system, and to gain a greater understanding of the challenges that face it, all while asking the fundamental question underneath everything. How real is the idea of a Chinese model of politics? I hope you enjoy the episode. Adam Nee, welcome to Talkville 21. Thanks for having me, Jim. All right, so... When I reached out to you, it was with the intention of discussing the rise of China in the context of this sort of ongoing series that we have on Francis Fukuyama. And so a lot of what we're going to be discussing today will sort of draw from this idea, this narrative of an adversary in the West and deal with the way China is being perceived for a Western audience and exploring that mythology. So I want to start with something really broad and get your opinion When it comes to the idea of China democratizing as markets become increasingly free, were Western political leaders and foreign policy experts mistaken? And what exactly did they miss? What did they misunderstand in the Chinese model? I think that's a question that's being asked with actually some intensity recently in analytical and policy circles, also discussed in public debate, obviously. For some, the current trajectory of China shows that past policy of engagement was a mistake. So it was too optimistic to think that 
and uh, authoritarian one-party rule China was going to democratize just because it was opening up its economy, just because information and ideas and people were flowing across borders and China was opening up to the world. On the other hand, there are these people that argue that it was always too optimistic and perhaps idealistic to think that China would do so, that is, democratize and liberalize, and that engagement was not for the sole purpose of that. It was more for practical um, interest and cooperation. So whether we think China was going to democratize or not, back when, say, the United States started opening itself up to China and China started to opening up itself to the world, um, is not just a question of historical curiosity, but it, it's a contentious topic right now in terms of policy and how the world respond to a rising China. So personally, I do think it was too optimistic to think that China was going to democratize just simply because of the force of the market and that there were increasing trade, investment and other exchanges between the West and China. I don't think China was ever going to democratize, uh, at least in hindsight, now that we see from hindsight, in the way that we thought um, in terms of liberal democracy. Right. So for the Chinese Communist Party, democracy has a different definition. So they talk about democracy as achieving some effect, for example, um, some the material betterment of the people or social stability. Instead of in liberal democracies where we link democracy to individual rights, freedoms, tolerance um, and, and, and various liberal values and ideals. So there's, a, I think, a vast gulf between how the Chinese Communist Party see democracy and define it and how um, we do that generally in Western liberal democracies. So it's at least partially a matter of perception. Yeah. How much of that, I mean, this, this, is a, this is a bit of a leading question, but how much of that is a willful desire to distance themselves from the Western idea of democracy? Is this a genuine misunderstanding or is it a refusal? I think it's become abundantly clear to top Chinese leaders in Beijing, and it's been for some time, that Western-style democracy does not work from their perspective. So, for example, they look at the example of America and they point out its inequality, its social degradation, the role of money in politics, and the variety of what they consider to be social ills from its political, economic, social system. So the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want to go down that route. Of, of course, it's not going down that route because it wants to monopolize political power. But the justification of that is that uh, Western-style democracy just does not work, right, in terms of social stability, in terms of ensuring economic growth sustainably over the long run, ensuring that the state is going in the right direction over the long term. So they've come to a conclusion um, that liberal democracy and neoliberalism, neoliberal economics does not work. The question is where, where do they take China? So I think they've come to this idea that, well, this thing doesn't work and China has to open its new path. And I think that's what um, you know, Xi Jinping's thought is about, this idea that we need a new path that's different from the path walked by uh, liberal democracies. 
and you would consider this is a fairly new development, because up until uh, the rise of Xi Jinping, there was a degree, or at least, actually, up until 2019, really, there was a bit of a love affair, well, 2018, there was very much a love affair between the United States and China, even if it wasn't accompanied by ideological proximity or the degree of openness from an economic perspective that was vaunted. For example, there was still quite a lot of protectionism, at least on the Chinese side, for years and years. But that didn't seem to stop either side from pursuing a degree of rapprochement. Yep. Um, I think that's definitely right, um, that US-China found uh, ways to cooperate. And I think that's much of that's based on their interests in the trade realm, in the political realm, in the security realm from the late 70s onward until probably the mid-late 2000s. We're seeing a lot of cooperation engagement. But as China grows more powerful and as its model increasingly becomes apparent to Western policymakers that it's not going to liberalize, and in fact, it's going to go a different way. That is, it's going to, in many respects, uh, China on the Xi has turned uh, more illiberal, uh, that there is increasing friction. And we see that most prominently in the deterioration of US-China relations over the last few years. So, you know, I think there is ideological difference. There is domestic politics that's driving a lot of that, but also very importantly, that they just have clashing interests, right? With one becoming more powerful and the other trying to maintain its um, supremacy, both in Asia and globally. So I think a lot of the conflict that US-China is currently involved in is an outgrowth of that power trajectory, but also, as I mentioned, a variety of other factors. All right. Well, let's put a pin in that for just one moment and go back to what I would view as one of the key moments in the split, back to the end of history and the, the, the end of the Cold War. In this moment of, or rather in that moment of triumph of free market liberalism, how exactly, what was the Chinese takeaway from, from the Cold War and the victory of the Western model? Well, I think it's actually quite interesting because that assessment has changed over time. I think at the time, if you look at the end of the 70s and throughout the 80s, China was in a place where it had come out from the upheavals of the Maoist era with the end of the culture, the death of the Mao and the end of the Cultural Revolution. Its leaders, Hua Guofeng and then um, Deng Xiaoping, had set China on a different policy trajectory. So de-emphasizing class struggle, de-emphasizing mass political movements, instead focusing on economic development right, and try to maintain social um, stability and cohesion. So China was on a different trajectory. It was opening up to the world as well. It was being recognized by increasing number of countries. And the assessment, there were a number of assessments, but I think one of the predominantly features of this assessment is that the Soviet model just didn't work. That's why it collapsed. It had all kinds of shortfalls and therefore it wasn't able to compete effectively with uh, with the Western camp. One of the main lessons there is that you have to have a powerful economy, but also that you need to maintain ideological coherence and unity. So, you know, this is something that she talks about a fair bit, that one of the most important thing is to have self-confidence in your system, ideological self-confidence. And this was one of the things that Soviet elite had lost their belief 
in their system. And that is why today Xi Jinping very much emphasizes that the need for uh, a coherent ideology and the need to believe in your political system and vision. So going back to like at the time in the 80s, I think there were what we considered to be reformers that saw the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union as proof that the system didn't work and they want to move China towards, um, towards uh, more akin to the democratic system of the Western camp. But after Tiananmen, I think this, this changed, culminating in what we see now, which is Democracy does not work. We need to centralize party power. The forces of market needs to be brought under control. The party needs to, uh, again, reinforce um, its moral supremacy and that we need to chart a different path from these taken by liberal democracies. Let me follow that up with another question. How long did this reformist wing survive in Chinese politics? I mean, I think it was very prominent in the 80s. The 80s was a decade in which there was a lot of ferment and possibilities on the horizon for China. And I think it was a very important decade in deciding the future of China in that sense. The more, the more liberal, I mean, of course, like liberal is a term that I think we use quite differently um, for in the Western context and the Chinese context. But in the Chinese context, there are these reformers who, who believed the party and the state um, should be further apart, that the party should have its role as the political leadership and the state should do what states do. You know, there are reformers that believe in uh, the rule of law, constitutionalism. So all these different things that, that would change China's political system incrementally towards something that we recognize as liberal democracy. Perhaps it was always idealistic to think that China was gonna to move totally in that direction um, and that the path was a straight line of progression. But in some ways they, in the eighties, they did want to move in, in that direction, right? So the separation between the party and state, for example, right? That was, that was already discussed around party's leadership elections within the party or experimenting um, with different forms of participatory democracy, right? That was that was a thing as well in the 80s. But 89, of course, changed all that and emphasized the reformers very much took a hit in the, in the 80s. Many fell from power um, and their influence has been contained, I think, since, since then. Of course, there are still um, groups of reformers in the party trying to push through various reforms from economic to very limited political and social reform but generally i think we see as we see on the xi this idea that party needs to turn to re-centralized control and in fact to champion conservative values it's almost surprising in some ways that the fall of the Soviet Union would have such an impact on the development of the Chinese model because there had already been a substantial split since, uh, what, 1979? Yep. In fact, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I'm currently, um, at least in partially in preparation for this interview, I was rereading um, On China, which was published in, I think, 2011 by, by Kissinger. And it's very, uh, it's amusing to see just how, how starry-eyed he was about the development of this new model. I can't remember where I was going with that. Yeah, so you were saying how um, there has already been ideological split between the Soviet Union and China. So why would China, I, I guess, why would China decry the kind of fall of the Soviet Union? Was that was that the kind of 
Well, you're going with? To some degree, I was surprised by the impact that the fall of the Soviet Union had specifically on the Chinese elite, the idea that oh, well, we, we could lose power and there's a necessity for absolute ideological control when arguably they were already moving in a completely different direction and had already liberalized their economy to a, to a substantial degree and were moving away from the Soviet model for, uh, had, had already moved away from it for decades. And in fact, it, it almost feels like it, like the reverse happened. In fact, it almost feels like the Soviets attempted a degree of liberalization much in the way that the Chinese had and failed to do so and as a result collapsed. Yeah, I think... I think that's that's fairly that's a fairly important point, and that is the Soviet Union tried to um, try to reform as well, but it wasn't successful. Whereas China tried economic reform, and it was successful. Um, the transition between Maoist um, economic principles to reform and opening up under Deng, um, and uh, was was very economically successful. So. China was obviously moving away from the Soviet model, but at the same time, the Chinese leaders realized that the forces of the market was also, you know, these social economic forces were going to have tremendous impact on the ability to continue to rule. And therefore, they needed in some way to maintain control. And that's why we see, I think, today, this emphasis, of course, continue on economic development, this emphasis on nationalism, nationalist pride, and also this emphasis on ideology, ideological control, controlling the story of China's past and rewriting it to serve current political purposes. Let's talk about that, the last hundred years of the Chinese Communist Party. But more importantly, the the continuity or the the, the narrative continuities that are being written about the Chinese Communist Party in relation with the rest of Chinese rule over the over the eras. How much continuity is there and what are the peculiarities of communist rule in China? Uh, very briefly, because I realize that question is just enormous. Yeah, so since the party's founding in 1921, it's been 100 years. The Chinese Communist Party claimed that they've uh, achieved the first centenary goal of creating a moderately prosperous society, meaning lifting people out of absolute poverty. In terms of the continuity of this history, the party writes it in a linear, unidirection way. It perceives history, I mean, this might getting somewhat theoretical, but the party perceives history as a unidirection process where you make a progression by every time you solve what it terms a main contradiction, right? So a didactic process where um, you solve the contradiction and then you move forward. Eventually, you will get to the point of the end of history. That was what motivated Mao to launch the Great Leap Forward, for example, that's the rhetoric of national rejuvenation on the Xi. So the idea that they're moving in the right direction, the idea that there is an endpoint in history, that happy land, that utopia, and that perfect socialist society, whatever you want to call it, and that the party, uh, and, and, and that this process, there is logical and immutable laws governing this process, right? And that the party is a vehicle is a locomotive that's going to carry the Chinese nation and the Chinese people through that process into that bright future, into that end of history. So the point is that the party is writing a history. The party's historiography is one that's simple, that's unidirectional, that it uses to justify its current monopoly on power 
and make the argument for its continued privileged place in the Chinese political system. So I guess that's a, that, that's a short answer. So it creates a uniformity when in fact there is little uniformity. The party's 100 years of history is filled with political movements, upheavals, crimes, vicious, vicious internal struggle, discontinuities in policy, uh, a, a mixed batch of different ideologies, um, social economic change, you name it. You know, the party has grown to be a massive organization of that 100 years. It's experienced a lot and it's changed a lot. So in terms of continuity, there are some elements of continuity, but certainly not in the way that's presented in the orthodox party history, as we saw with the recent history resolution. All right. Well, I would certainly love to come back to last week's resolution, but happily, I remembered why I brought up uh, on China. And it's, it's specifically in relation to that. One of the first lines of the book is talking about how there's a sense of continuity and stability in Chinese history that has been preserved of course, we know that a lot of the primary sources for this book were actually conversations specifically with statesmen from the Communist Party. And as a result, we know that a lot of it is you know, not necessarily based on, on, on true historical study, but on, well, propaganda. And so it's very interesting to see the parallel there between the way that Chinese political history is presented by the Communist Party and how the CCP is being presented by the Communist Party. Uh, yeah. Is that a that's a comment, though, right? Like, are you... more, more of a comment, yeah. I, I suppose I could turn it into a question and say something along the lines of... I, it's interesting to see that the CCP aims to project a sense of historical continuity, both in terms of its own history, but also in terms of its history with relation to China. That there's this idea of this, you know, this, this historical civilization, which, you know, has never really faltered, never collapsed in the way that, you know, there's never been this renewal that, you know, that we saw in the West... And so it's very interesting to see how that plays out and how that's being projected. And I suppose that actually does lead into another question that I meant to ask, which is how real, you know, how real is the idea of a Chinese model? How, um, I'm just going to take a moment to, to, to phrase this as precisely as I can. There's this cliche in, in the Western view of how China plans its domestic and foreign policy that they're always 10 steps ahead or thinking with an eye on the next century, not the next decade. How real is the idea that there's an actual narrative driving Chinese policy versus the idea that policy is being sort of slotted into a narrative after the fact? I think there is a perception among a number of Western countries that China is a monolith. China is often portrayed as a monolith where uh, its, its, its leaders are directing the massive organization that's a party that the party is a unified force and that when Xi Jinping says we're going to achieve common prosperity, then everybody's going to pitching and drive towards the same direction. And when they say, you know, we're going to become a regional leader or we're going to make China strong in uh, science and technology terms, then that the whole of the Chinese party state and nation is behind that effort. So there's this idea that China is a monolith. China, China has 1.4 million people. The Chinese Communist Party has billion people. Sorry, Chinese Communist Party has 95, I think about 95 million members and about one one million organizations composed of one million organizations. It is absolutely mind-bogglingly massive and complicated bureaucracy. 
So I will say that China is actually a vastly more complicated and in some way contradictory place and political system than what's often made out to be. And I think we have to understand that complexity. And of course, I think that complexity often distract from the simple narratives that we see often painted or implied in the media and, and by some parts of the analytical community. But I think we have to understand the complexity of China. All right. Well, with that in mind, what's the first thing that Western observers should keep in mind when paying closer attention to Chinese politics, as many have in the past in the past two, three years? What should they claim have in mind? Well, I mean, I think I think exactly that and that China is a complex place and that it's mm -hmm. pursuing sometimes uh, contradictory policies with different actors pulling different direction mm -hmm. and that its policies, for example, its foreign policy is often intention, right? where it's trying to advance or defend its national interests. But on the, on, on the other end, it's also trying to um, portray itself as, as a good neighbor, for example, or a responsible major country. So there are various policy objectives that are intention. And they reflect just different interests, different interest groups, different ideas, and the different currents of social economic uh, transformation in China. So I think that complexity is what we should as analysts focus on and be able to present to the wider public. All right. But to be fair to journalists, that's that's a much less compelling narrative than this idea of an ideological struggle that truly does just pit the West against China in this really visceral way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's complexity is not a comparingly narrative. Hmm. And the, as you say, the, the compelling narrative, the narrative that or for politicians mobilize their constituents for journalists that and and writers that are able to sell their book and for analysts that is able to get their simple message across is often a compelling but simple one hmm. and often distorted well let's let's examine that more closely what are your thoughts on this um this notion of a cold war of a new cold war between china and the united states yeah, well, I think that's, you know, uh, the way a lot of people put it. But um, w w however you want to label the current intensifying strategic competition between US and China, mm -hmm. I think we have to realize that it's here to stay. Mm -hmm. That friction between the two most powerful countries in the world is going to increase. That they've integrated in the last few decades in a variety of ways, but at the same time now that they are decoupling in some other areas, including in like research collaboration, for example, mm -hmm. right? So we've got these contradictory trends. We've got China and the United States increasingly bumping into each other for various reasons, but at the same time, there is a important need for them to collaborate, to solve global challenges, for example, and to ensure regional and global stability. So we're in an area where competition needs to coexist with cooperation in a way that was never the case between the liberal West and the Soviet camp, because there was limited integration, especially economic integration between the two camps, whereas now China is a vital part of the global economic structure. So yes, I think there is a... There is a vast contest 
going on between uh, the two countries, and that will increasingly engulf different areas and, and geographic regions. But that conflict is also vastly complicated for both the United States, China, as well as the other countries that has a stake in it. So it's because of the interwoven nature of the global economy that we're not in a situation that's analogous to the contest between the Soviet Union and the United States in the 20th century. Yeah, and partly. The other part is, of course, we tend to, to be very um, state-centric in our thinking. Whereas things like illiberalism or, um, let's just say, uh, discrimination against minorities or economic inequality, I mean, these these issues are not issues only pertaining uniquely to, to um, one system or the other. Hmm. The issues that we face both in liberal democracies, as we saw uh, most prominently during the Trump administration, hmm. and in China as well. So for those of us that care about I guess, to a liberal democracy and these values that underpin it, then the struggle is not just between China and the United States, where one is authoritarian and the other is democratic, but the struggle is between these values and, and on the other side, um, values that are uh, and interests that are driving, that are against it, right? It's the forces that are against these, these values. Mm-hmm. And throwing up these challenges, so it's a glo- I think it's a global struggle. The struggle for human rights, human dignity, and democracy is a global struggle. So I think we should see it in a wider context. Hmm. Absolutely. I want to go back to something that you said a little bit earlier. What's your takeaway from the annual plenum and your perspective on the Xi Jinping rewriting of CCP history and uh, more more broadly Xi Jinping thought? Yeah. So. The, the sixth plenum that uh, adopted the history resolution. So that's the third such document that's hailed as uh, the first such document in the party history. The first was in 1945 on the Mao. The second was 1981 on the Dern, which set the course for reform opening up. And now 2021 on the Xi. And uh, this document essentially draws a linear and very simplistic and in, in, in many places distorted version of CCP history. It tries to betray the party's glories, to present its glories, but hide its failings. Based on its historical achievement, it makes the argument that the party will take China uh, into a bright future. So it's making an argument for its current and future power. And the third thing that it does is that it places Xi Jinping at the helm of that effort, right? It, it basically tells us that Xi Jinping is uniquely qualified to lead the party and the Chinese people into that bright future, right? So, so it, is, it is above anything a political document. It's not an objective view of history. Indeed, it's not even a document that tries to uh, reflect or learn lessons from history. In fact, it's putting the current CCP and its leader, Xi Jinping, in the sweep of history, not only CCP, but Chinese history, and making an argument that under Xi, under the party, China will achieve national rejuvenation. So it's very much political in nature. The party has always seen history to be a sensitive topic, what it considered to be a sensitive topic. Um, It considers history to be power. And I think there's good reason for that from what we've seen in internal party struggles in the CCP where history plays a very 
important role. It's both a manifestation of power, but also it helps, in this case, Xi Jinping consolidate his power in the lead up to the, the all-important party congress. The simple message is that the plenium lionizes Xi and whitewashes history. History is used to serve politics. I have a question that sort of offshoots from that. And I wanted to ask uh, what you think of Xi Jinping as a statesman. How does he how does he compare to, to previous leadership within China? And I suppose to some degree, to the degree that it's possible to his, um, his contemporaries, both authoritarian and democratic. Xi Jinping is a, I think it's a very hard person to read in many respects. In a lot of ways, Chinese Communist Party leaders rise to power, partly based on their seemingly mediocre qualities in the reform era. And some of the reasons is that they need to appeal to all sides within the party and especially guard their left flank, for example, as well as reassuring the more reform factions in the party, reform elements in the party, rather. So they generally hide their thinking quite well and it seems to be quite, most of them are quite luckluster until they uh, attain the top position. I think Xi Jinping is, I think Xi Jinping is increasingly of the last few years. We've seen this cult of Xi being built in China, driven by the Chinese party state through its media, et cetera, et cetera. And my concern is that we're going to see the increasing centralization of party state power on the Xi himself, as well as this construction of Xi mythology and cult that we've seen accelerated over the last few years. So, you know, not everything's comparable to Mao and Mao's era, but we saw where the Mao example, the cult worship of Mao, that example uh, should be a warning to Xi of what and others of what could go wrong when you get onto that path and walk to the end. So uh, I guess I don't have any more Xi as a uh, leader for you other than I think he's been portrayed as a uniquely qualified leader. I think he is a skilled political operator. I don't get a sense that he is intellectually and ideologically up there with his predecessors, Mao, for example. But that being said, I think Xi Jinping is uh, the leader, but as well as the figurehead for the larger body of political forces and intellectual forces in China, in, in China, in the establishment. That's a really interesting claim to make, uh, particularly in this context of the emergence of Xi as a strongman. Obviously, there are forces behind him, but the idea that they're truly significant and beyond just his own person. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like Xi is, um, Xi is just one person and <laughs> his policies the ideas, the frameworks, common, whether that be common prosperity or his style of um, foreign policy, doesn't just originate with one leader. It originates in the largest, in the context between the different interest groups and, and between different ideas in the system. And it's often a compromise. It's often contradictory. It's, it's often problematic implementation. It's often inspirational. All of that adds to the complexity of what um, she is trying to advance under the rubric of national rejuvenation, but also across these programs, programs, common prosperity, for example. Right. So, yes, she is in the limelight, but he's a representation of uh, larger 
forces. All right. Well, I want to go back to to that idea, or rather to specifically discussing foreign policy and domestic policy and the tensions that may exist between them. Uh, so f- first of all, let's just discuss what the linchpins of Chinese foreign policy are uh, at the present moment and how, how much of a concern foreign policy is for the CCP. Foreign policy, both in China as well as in other countries, I think is an extension, in general, an extension of domestic politics. Um, and that's not different in Xi's China. I think the linchpin of Xi's foreign policy is this idea of national interest and pride. The advancement and defense of China's growing suite of uh, national interests, of interests around the world, as a result of just the organic growth of China, mm-hmm. economically and its other links with the world. So she needs to defend and advance these interests, but also needs to satisfy this nationalist sentiment, this idea that China is a proud nation, this narrative that it's been a central humiliation where foreign powers have aggressed and stomped down on China and that under the CCP, the Chinese nation and people have stood up and that the party is uniquely placed to uphold Chinese dignity. Right, so I think they're the two pillars of Chinese foreign policy. Of course, a lot of that is that's to satisfy the different interest groups within China, but also the more popular sentiments uh, within the population. Well, that leads me to some of the some of the domestic issues that are currently facing the Chinese Communist Party: the power outages that were that were endemic, the real estate crisis that seems to be well that's that's evolving in ways that many did not anticipate. Uh, the possibility of water shortages, demographic decline. So how serious are these concerns, one, and what actions are being taken to counteract them, two? Yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't specialize in any of these um, areas in particular, so I wouldn't go into detail. But I think the point that I make is that, again, China is a massive country. It has economic challenges, social challenges, resource challenges. I think it's normal for a large country of this size and wait to have a lot of these problems, right? So, and some of these problems are not only uniquely Chinese problems. The imbalancing economic development is a problem that a lot of countries face. Resource challenges is something that a lot of countries face too. Demographic decline is something that more advanced economies have have been experiencing for decades. So these are not just unique Chinese problems. But I think what is different is the Chinese state's ability to mobilize because of its ability to control many levers of social economic activity. When it wants to, it can bring to bear a large amount of resources and mobilize the population in a way that is very difficult in the West. Right? So um, we saw that during COVID where the Chinese state mobilized in a way that Western democracies found it hard to do. One of these main reasons was that the authorities just didn't care about individual freedom as much as, or, or due process as much as their Western counterparts. I'm not saying that uh, you know authoritarian systems are better at controlling pandemic or solving problems, but I'm just pointing out that because of China's political system, it is able to sometimes do things that democracies are unable to do, or at least uh, at least the population in democracy is not willing to accept. Hmm. Absolutely. 
that being said, I would I would turn that around to some degree. On the one hand, absolutely there are other countries that face uh, similar similar issues to some degree. I mean, demographic decline is definitely a problem, uh, not just in East Asia with uh, Korea and uh, and Japan, but also I mean in in, in Germany as well. Uh, the United States is also facing a, a degree of that uh, with you know with declining birth rates, though it's sort of coupled with increasing immigration. So that allows for a, a degree of sustainability when it comes to population growth. Water shortages, obviously there are water issues within the United States. You know, power outages and housing crises are endemic to you know the, the global South as well to some degree. But I mean, China isn't Brazil. It's, you know, at this point, it's the second most powerful country in the world. So how serious must these issues be to some degree if they can't be solved efficiently? by an authoritarian state with that degree of control over the population. Yeah, I'll make the point that China is a country of contradictions. I mean, mm. if you look at its mega metropolises, these resemble the first world. These resemble uh, the events economies. In some ways, um, their technology infrastructure is even has even are even better mm. than what we see in many places in events economies around the world, right? Um, but then if you go into China's vast hinterland and its provinces, then some of these places resemble developing countries or even worse, right? Mm. So so there is this uh, duality or rather, you know, every point on the spectrum for a country like China that's hard to, it's, it's sometimes hard to understand that complexity. That it's both, in some ways, it's both facing the problems of events economy, but as well as the problems that comes with um, a developing country. So I guess what I'm trying to get is that I think, you know, China is facing a spectrum of problems. And, and you talked about how serious are these problems that it's not able, you know, it seem, seems that a top-down approach by the party stays unable to solve them. I think some of these problems are fairly deep-seated problems. I mean, you know, if you look at the role of property, real estate in China's economy and debt, I mean, these issues have been going on for decades. I mean, it's not something that they can solve straight away. And the cost of solving these problems are massive. Or if you get environmental problems, there's, you know, as much as they, um, the Chinese state is trying to push this model of sustainable development, there are other imperatives too for quickly improving local economic condition and getting people into jobs and uh, fulfilling the criteria for uh, local cadres promotions, for example. So yeah, there are different incentives and drivers driving China. And again, I'll reemphasize a point earlier about China as not just a monolith, the Chinese bureaucracy party state is just not a monolith, but it's a collection of interest groups, ideas, peoples, networks, an ecosystem that's that's interacting, competing, in some cases destroying each other. Hmm. So again, I guess I don't have a good answer for you other than just that complexity. That's already a pretty good answer, I'd say. All right. Well, let me just move on to to, to one final question in that case, or perhaps a penultimate question. What paths forward do you see for China under Xi Jinping and China in general? It's it's incredibly hard to say. I think. Hmm. If if we were experiencing, say, the Cultural Revolution, or uh, in the mid two thousands, the relatively liberal time in China, then I think not many of us would have predicted what was to come, especially after the 
Cultural Revolution, the massive change to China's political system, but also the more subtle in the 2000s and accelerated in the 2010s of a shift to more illiberal towards illiberalism that we see accelerated on the Xi. So I think it's very hard to predict where China will go. It confronts a variety of challenges, but the message that we get from the party is that. Everything is going to be fine, and that there is going to be a bright future. And I can assure you that that is not going to be a case. It's not going to be a smooth ride. China's political system is, in fact, not stable at all,、uh, and I think that's one of the key problems. The role of the party in China's economy and society, and the power that it wields, and the will to impose. On the lives of the Chinese, including in, real, in, in, in realms as as、um, as far as aesthetics and morality, poses real question as to where the shape of Chinese society and politics in the years to come. So again, I don't have an answer for you because I don't know. But it seems that the trajectory on the Xi that Xi has taken will continue. Meaning that there will be emphasis on party power, there will be an emphasis on political control over, say, economic development or、um, personal freedom.、Mm. There will be an emphasis on China's global interests and national dignity versus its reputation on the international stage. Say, so I think Xi's policies will continue and continue to evolve. All right. Well, that's that's a bit of a sobering appraisal. I usually like to close things up with a with a more lighthearted question. In this case, I'm going to have to go for something closer to、uh, black humor. Given given the focus that we've given narrative in this particular interview and the significance of rewriting the Chinese Communist Party's history and emphasizing Xi Jinping's role in it, how likely is it? Do you think that we'll see something、uh, along the lines of Xi Jinping the musical、uh, become popular in the next couple of、uh, couple of years in China? Xi Jinping the musical. I mean, so. Yes, it seems to be a <laughs> it seems to be a like harder question, but、um, there's a serious point to that, and that is、um, that is during during the Mao era we saw a crackdown on arts and literature, and that art was essentially desertified and slotted into a few boxes, right? It was decimated、um, and constricted by ideological limits, and we are seeing that now in Xi's China. With its attack on the entertainment industry, with its attempt to reshape the cultural landscape, with its attempt to instill moral values, so it's what is called core socialist values, essentially recasting of what it believes to be the proper moral system inherited from the Maoist era, but also added to and、um, and re- reframed for this new time.、Hmm. So what I'm trying to get is that. Art and entertainment and moral values and aesthetics are important to parties' long-term control. In addition to, you know, obviously economic growth and its more coercive tools of control. So, I think it's unlikely that we、we'll、see a musical based on Xi Jinping, but we can. There's a lot of clues to be gained on China's future trajectory from the way. That the authorities are treating culture and art.、Hmm. All right. Well, yeah, bit of a downer answer. I got to admit, 
but a realistic one and one that definitely uh, gives us greater insight into how things are evolving uh, on the ground and you know specifically in the artistic sphere. Well, in that case, uh, I think we've, we're more or less running out of time, so I'm just gonna gonna say, uh, Adam Nee, thank you for thank you for joining us on the podcast, and uh, I hope we get the opportunity to talk again like this soon. Thanks, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Talkville Twenty One podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville twenty one dot com. That's T O C Q U E V I L L E. 21.com and stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.